0: Welcome to another episode of Backlash Podcast. This week we are going to jump into a short segment with Paul Hartman talking about the Minnesota Muskie Expo. That's coming up March 8th, 9th, and 10th over at the Warner Coliseum at the State Fairgrounds in Minnesota. I believe this will be our third season that we've been there. So always a fun time. Brad and I will talk about that again here in a minute. And then we are going to talk to Michael Hansen, Mamacoggin Area Guide Service, primarily out of the Hayward area. And we're going to talk... Shallow water, deep water, fishing lures, water temperatures, all sorts of different stuff with Michael. A very good conversation that we had this week. And Mr. Brad Hoppy, I know you're super excited. Minnesota Muskie Expo is almost upon us. And you're, it's, I mean, as far as shows for you, it's like essentially in your backyard as close as shows get.
1: Yeah, that's for sure, Jeff. I mean, uh, being located where I'm located, this is a pretty simple one. It's two hours from my house versus seven and a half or eight. So I like that. That's for sure.
0: Yeah, for sure. It's not for me, though. It's a, one of my farthest drives that we have, but it's all And right. It, you know, I'm not going to talk about the weather. I don't want to talk about it. Things maybe are going to be fine, but in all likelihood, we'll probably get a snowstorm because that's the way it is when we come to Minnesota. I haven't seen snow all year, but we come over to Minnesota, and of course, it's going to be snowing. So... Hopefully uh, knock on some wood or something, you know, pray to whoever you want to pray to that things work out well. Because typically, Brad, this show, I couldn't even tell you the last time we've had a show in Minnesota where the weather was good for the entire weekend. It's been, I'm thinking it's like 2018. Like I remember one year there was a Saturday, we got like 10 inches of snow. And then we had COVID stuff. And then like our first year at this at this facility, I think it like Saturday again, it was like rain, ice, something. And then last year it was like snow almost the entire freaking show. So do whatever you got to do, Brad. Uh, can you go out there and do like an anti-snow dance for me and then video it? I want to <laughs> see it.
1: Oh, I hear you, Jeff. You know, it's been pretty bizarre. I do remember some really nice weekends and sometimes those first initial nice weekends were kind of, become a problem as well as guys are wanting to get outside and grill or do some yard work and that kind of stuff so kind of a double-edged sword but i you know the way things are looking it looks like it's going to be a really pleasant weekend potentially some rain but hey rain we'll deal with the last two years with freezing rain and snow and everything else no thanks it wasn't that fun especially pulling the trailer
0: Yeah, absolutely not. I know the story from last year. We didn't even make it home. It was, we got home at two o'clock on Monday, which set us behind for show prep for the Wisconsin Muskie Expo because those weekends go back to back. And speaking of the Wisconsin Muskie Expo, I don't have the dates, but I'm assuming it's going to be somewhere like 15th, 16th, 17th of March. And that'll be at the Central Wisconsin Convention Center in Rothschild or Wausau, whatever you want to say we will be up there. Again, 50 feet of booth space there, the same as we have in Minnesota, and we're going to try to jam-pack as much of the best stuff that we can find in there. You know, Brad, let's talk a little bit about Minnesota, though. There's a couple things that we could talk about. So DK Muskie Lures, we carried DK Muskie Lures back in the early days of Team Rhino Outdoors, and we have a special batch for those shows, for that show, the Minnesota show. We're going to have some DK Lures there, various sizes, various colors, and we're going to limit limit those to one per customer, I believe. So if you get there on Friday and you want a chance at a DK lure, they're I'm, a, I'm told they're still very sought after. I know Dave's stuff is incredible. looks awesome. If you want to stop out on Friday and try to get your hands on a DK. And then Brad, I saw Carrie was whipping up some sweet Backlash podcast gear that we're going to debut at the Minnesota show because we haven't had Backlash podcast gear at all in like, I don't know, Probably since this was back when we only had probably three listeners, we were selling hoodies. And now we have seven listeners. So we might actually be able to sell a hoodie or two.
1: Yeah, absolutely. She's been hard at it and she came up with some pretty cool stuff. So hopefully we can move some of those throughout the weekend and show some support to the Backlash podcast.
0: Yeah, and you know, when we come to the Minnesota show, we're going to still do a live podcast out of the Musky Mayhem booth on Friday night, probably be 7:15ish cuz we go till 8:30. And I Carrie was doing up some some can coolers, Brad. And I think the idea was that we're going to hand those to some people if they actually show up at the Minnesota show. We're going to hand out some Backlash Podcast can coolers, is that right?
1: She did those as well, and I'll tell you what, I was pretty impressed. I mean, you know, you think of can and you see a there's always a bunch of those laying around, right? People do it all the time. But what she came up with, she's actually doing the hot press on them, and they look really good. So excited about that as well. I already snagged one for
0: myself. Excellent. I definitely have snagged nothing, but I got to see the pictures of them. And then (laughs) one other announcement I want to make before we transition to our conversations this week is I have in my hands today, I got some very special Matlocks. They're Team Rhino Outdoors, 10th anniversary Matlocks. They're all numbered one through 30. And we are going to sell those at some point. I haven't decided yet when this is going to happen. I haven't decided if we're going to take any to any shows. I thought about maybe debuting debuting them at the Wausau show because you know we're from Wisconsin and that'd be like one of our home shows. But then we also have tons of people that support us over the internet. So I thought about just releasing all of them on the internet. But anyway, something to look forward to. A very cool bait. Brad, you've seen them because Carrie was involved in those as well. Pretty cool commemorative lure. And somebody might fish with them, but for me, it's just going to hang out on shelf. a shelf. very awesome thing that Duff did for Supernatural Big Baits in a 10-inch matlock. Very cool bait, Brad.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I've already told you that I need one for sure. So hopefully that still comes true.
0: Yeah, I got one saved for you. In fact, I remember if you specifically requested number five, which you got it. I believe we can get you number five. So there will only be 29 available to the public, but I'm actually assuming it's going to be less because I do owe a couple of guys that helped get the team Rhino Outdoors ball rolling their commemorative matlocks. But there should still be 25, 26 of them available to people that actually want one it's I, I don't know maybe there aren't that many people that even want one brad i mean we probably don't have many more customers than we do listeners
1: well it's amazing jeff i mean if you look at throughout the history that i've been involved in the muskie industry there's been a, quite a few different commemorative baits and i have my hands on quite a few of them so i think i think the people will answer and they're going to want to get their hands on them i know i was excited about it so i'm guessing everybody else
0: will as well absolutely well, I don't have very much else to add. I will quickly say, if you're looking for gear for your next musky fishing adventure and you're not making it out to the Minnesota show or the Wisconsin Muskie Expo, make sure you check out teamrhinooutdoors.com. And I also recommend that you check out muskiemayhamtackle.com for the biggest selection of the originators of the Flashaboo big bladed bucktails. Check out muskiemayhamtackle.com. Brad, I took your job from you. And now I'm going to just say, let's just transition into our conversations that we had with Paul Hartman. And Michael Hansen. All right, our first guest this episode is Paul Hartman. And many of you may know Paul's name because we talk to him annually because we're talking about the Minnesota Muskie Expo, which is coming up very soon, Paul. It's uh, hard to believe it's almost been another year. And it's also hard to believe that show season will be ending shortly because it just seemed like it just arrived. And it's going to be gone quicker than winter this year because winter didn't last very long. But let's talk a little bit about it. First off, Paul, I do want to actually say thank you for taking time out of your schedule to talk to us about the show. But let's let's give our listeners a little bit of information, talk to you about dates and times. And maybe let's talk a little bit about some of the special things you guys have going on at the show, because you guys always do a great job.
2: Well, thank you very much. Yeah, we're excited. I mean, without winter this winter, it's it's been strange. And all of a sudden you blink and it's here. And right behind that, we have spring. So uh, the past two years, we've been at the Minnesota State Fairgrounds over at the Warner Coliseum. We're a week and a half out now. We're going to be March 8th, 9th and 10th. It's Friday through Sunday. The past two years we've had to deal with snow this year. I think the forecast has us at fifty degrees. So oh no, um, Paul, we you, have a. you us... did
0: it. You talked about the weather, <laughs> Paul. Don't do it.
2: It's a no, they can't be wrong. They're, they're never wrong. These are Minnesota forecasts. Yeah, they nail it every time.
0: They're always wrong. It's terrible. Like that is the one thing I have to say. I wasn't even going to bring it up. I didn't want to talk weather at all. Cause I'm like, every time, you know, the the long-range forecast looks good. And then something happens to this show. I just want to see what happens with a Minnesota Muskie Expo where we do not have a weather issue. It'd be so amazing. Oh, my gosh.
2: The worst show we've ever had, though, was we ran into an April where we had 75 degrees on a Sunday. You cannot get a muskie guy inside a building when spring comes and it's like that. So, But I think the stage is set. We're going to see what happens. But, yeah, we have a lot of great vendors again this year. You know, we got just an unbelievable seminar lineup. We expanded it because we have the Missoula Anglers Boat Show as part of the show this year for our third consecutive year. Rangers, the sponsor of that. So we did some more stuff with electronics. I know there's a lot of people curious about upgrading electronics, what's available, you know, the forward-facing sonar, upgrading the lithium, the charging systems. So we're going to scatter in some seminars that... Kind of give some of the rigging tips as part of it, too. But then we have all the big name guys. You know, we have Kevin Cochran, Mike Key, Steve Herbick, Josh Borowski, Rob Kim, Greg Thomas, Lee Talton, Joe Peterson, John Ronsley, Sarah Trampy, Ben Olson, Lucrana Strand. I mean, it's the who's who and we're excited to get people in there it's 17 dollars for a weekend pass turn it into an educational experience just show up and hit every seminar jot down two things that are going to help you at each seminar put them on a card in your wallet and pull that out next time you're struggling on the water rather than looking in the box for the answer look at a couple things that might pique your mind and you know, points you back to what people were talking about at the seminars and try some of that stuff out on the water next year, see if it can't change things around.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Tons of do at, at the show all weekend long. Lots of vendors. Paul, I think you probably have, what, the biggest show for vendors that there is around, maybe?
2: It is. I think out of all the muskie shows, we have 160 booths there, and, uh, it's you know, everything pertains. It's, we aren't selling insurance guys and chiropractors it's all just hardcore musky stuff with manufacturers retailers guides but i think the biggest thing is just all these custom colors you know new introduced baits that you're able to get for the first time at the shows and i think there's been some exciting stuff you know i heard at both chicago and milwaukee but there was some cool new stuff out there and people are always looking to get the hot new thing and try and fool the fish. The fish seem to be, I don't know if they're getting smarter, you know, evolution doesn't happen that fast, but they sure have my number now compared to what they used to 10 years ago. So I'm the guy who's trying to buy my way to success and always looking for a color they haven't seen or someone with a new gadget that, you know, blade combination, whatever it happens to be, new crankbait, something to try and tip the odds in my favor for the the first few months of the season till they get used to the new
0: stuff. Yeah, definitely. So what do you got going on for uh, kids? I know this isn't just an adult event. You guys do a good job for kids. Let's talk a little bit about that. So fishing
2: for life comes over, they set up a trout pond so the kids can come do that. They got a BB gun range there. And then uh, the handful foundation has helped us out with Georgia's tackle box. I think we're 18 years into doing this since George passed away. So it's kind of in memory of George Wall, the show founder and he would always hound, you know, getting kids into this is the future. We got to do it. And everybody would talk about getting kids in, but nobody ever gets around to doing it. So we've had lure making area for the kids each year since he's passed. This year, we have the Tony Grant rattling crankbaits that we're going to be doing You know we've done a super shad in the past, so it's a a different one. They airbrushed it up. Kids, they're creative. They do a great job with it. And you know we have kids that are four and five years old spray painting up their own stuff and doing a really good job. Then we have a bunch of the spring bulldogs. They can take warm chunk paint and you know, design those. And there again, like I said, a lot of creativity. And we got young boys and girls in there, three, four, five years old that are painting up super cool stuff. And then the final one, we do the tinsel bucktails where they're putting numbers, six, sevens, eights for blades on there. And they come up with some amazing color combinations. And the fun part is, is seeing kids come back and you know, showing the five-pound pike they got, the 45-inch muskie they got. I mean, every year we get a pile of people that are texting over and sharing pictures of stuff that they got with baits that they made the year before. And it's fun seeing the kids come through the door, just losing their mind with their dad, you know, saying, let's get over there, let's get to the kids section. And the dad's like, hey, settle down, we're going to get there, you know. But it's fun to see that enthusiasm about fishing from these young kids and hopefully it, you know, turns some of them into the next manufacturers too. So,
0: right. So Paul, if people are looking to come to the show, do you do advanced pre-sales for tickets or is this something they can just get at the door?
2: Oh, uh, we don't know. We just, uh, everything's right cash at the door and we're open Friday two until eight thirty, Saturday, 10 till six thirty, Sunday, 10 till four o'clock. I always tell people, you know, come a little bit later on Friday, a little bit later on Saturday, I mean, you it seems like the show's kind of clear out early. You get a chance to really, you know, pick people's minds as far as the manufacturers and the guides and a lot more one-on-one interaction. And then Sunday usually is a great day if you want to have a little bit more quality time with the people that are there, the vendors. Show up during the slower periods when it's Saturday at noon, it's a madhouse and You know, everyone's just scrambling to try and, you know, answer questions and that. But like I said, show up for the whole weekend for 17 bucks, three days entertainment. You can't beat it. If you're making it just for a couple hours, it's $10 at the door for the day, though. And you'll, you'll get out of this as much as you want to just by spending the time here. And everyone wants to tell you what the secret lure they have is share with you successes that they've heard about out of the waters you're fishing. Just take the time to ask the questions and take it all in.
0: Absolutely. And if people want to learn more about the Muskie Expo, have Facebook you can look up. And what's the website?
2: We do our uh, website, mn-muskieexpo, dot com. Yeah. So, and then Facebook, if you go on there, I think all the manufacturers have been doing a great job of starting to hype it up. So I'm thinking last year, they did a phenomenal job of everyone sharing, you know, with people. And, you know, I mean, for them, it's in their best interest to let everyone know they're coming. But if you see those on Facebook, if you'd like them and share them, so everyone's aware of it, it'd be awesome. We'd appreciate that and just look forward to seeing everyone there at the show. It's, The one time a year that you get to run into everybody, you know, and just a lot of fun reconnecting with everyone, hearing stories of last year and, you know, hearing their big plans for the year to come and what the strategy is. And, yeah, just a, a fun, fun weekend. And, you know, at that point, we're turning the corner. I mean, we have some of the lakes starting to let loose with ice down in the cities already. So, I think people have winter fever worse than ever because ice has been sketchy most of the year and snowmobiling didn't happen this year. So even though we had a mild winter, there was a lot less activity to do outside. Guys are just going bonkers to get out there and start talking about the fish again.
0: Definitely. Well, Paul, I want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule to talk about the Minnesota Muskie Expo with us. You'll see us bright and early on that Thursday morning. We'll get in there right away and get get unloaded and get things set up. We'll obviously have 50 feet of the best stuff that we can uh, bring to a muskie show. So, Paul, thanks again for your time, and we'll see you again in about a week and a half. Yeah. Are
2: you guys doing a podcast from there, do you know?
0: Uh, yes. Yes, sir, we are. We're going to have a podcast on Friday night at, let's see, you go till 8.30, right? So probably, for sure. So it'll probably be like 7.15, I'm guessing, we'll start a podcast from the Minnesota show.
2: I'll be in the crowd grilling
0: you with all the hard questions. That sounds awesome. That's what we're looking forward to.
2: Looking forward to seeing you guys. Thanks for the time. Appreciate it. You
0: bet. Thank you, Paul. Have a good night. You too. I know. All right. Our guest this week is Michael Hansen, Namakagan Area Guide Service up in what? Primarily, I'm guessing the Hayward area. Is that right, Michael?
3: Yeah, correct. All over up there.
0: Excellent. And... Let's let's jump into it a minute. You know, since we've never had you on the podcast on a solo episode, if people want to hear you, they can go back to the live at the Minnesota Muskie Expo almost a year ago. And we have you on there in that roundtable. But for this episode, let's talk a little bit about your guide service and, you know, what do you got going on with it? And, you know, where are you fishing? What got you into muskie fishing? Let's get a little bit about all that.
3: No, absolutely. Well, I'll just start from the beginning. I guess I got into muskie fishing when my dad put me in golf lessons, to be honest with you. I came home with a full report about what I saw in the water and never talked any bit about golf. And that's when my dad said, dang, he's a fisherman. So, uh, you know, I never had anybody fish in my family, but they were really good about, you know, buying me a few things here and there. I got a job when I was 12 years old at a bait shop in Oconmilock where I lived. And those guys really. Pulled me under their wing and started taking out musky fishing right away, and I caught my first musky on Conlaw Lake when I was twelve. And ever since then, I've just been glued to the darn things, to be honest with you. So, really, am thankful for for having a strong work ethic as a young lad and accepting, you know, lures as form of payment since I wasn't old enough to technically work, and and technically, you know, a few guide trips from those guys. So,
0: it's a cool story. So, golf, huh? Well. <laughs> What would happen if you would have stuck with golf? How much different would life have changed right now?
3: Oh, uh, gosh, I would probably still not have a lot of money, and yeah, I don't know. I'd probably be married right now, though.
0: <laughs> there's there's that yeah, possibility. Yep. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it's cool. I feel I, I get out golf every once in a while now. I'm really happy. I learned how to play it, but uh, definitely. I was too big of a space cadet. I wanted to play out in the mud and, you know, see what lived in the water more than find my
1: golf ball. That's for sure. Well, you could have you could have possibly found some of that on the course, though, in some of those ponds and what have
3: you. Oh, no, absolutely. No, that's
1: that's
3: essentially what I was doing. You know, I was looking for, you know, golf balls. I kind of consider that as fishing. Other people softballs deep in the woods. And then like you said, like clans, crayfish, I would come home with a full report. Like I saw twenty-five painted turtles. I saw three crayfish. And me and that kid got into a fight over who found this crayfish first and blah blah blah. It was actually pretty funny, especially now that my dad brings it up around other people. <laughs>
1: it's, uh...
0: So, Michael, let's talk about this for a second. You grew up in Oconomowoc, and then now you're up in like the, the northern Wisconsin Hayward area. What prompted that change?
3: You know, we moved from Oconomowoc to Madison when I was a freshman in high school. I was a talented swimmer back in the day, and there wasn't really much of a community around here for for that. So I actually gave up fishing for quite quite a few years, you know, not, not totally, but, um, you know, I was doing... 11 practices a week during the summers and you know it was a winter sport as well too it's pretty much year-round for me but once I got out of that I became a swim coach a club swim coach and that was that was a lot of fun but it was always something in the back of my mind that I wanted to be a fishing guy down the road and I did it a little bit part-time when I was in Madison but you know, I kind of looked at where I was in life. I was single, you know, no kids or anything like that. And I was just like, you know, if I don't make this jump now and try something different, you know, something else good might happen in my life or bad. And it might keep me from trying something like that. So, you know, I found found the Hayward area to be kind of appealing to me, even though that I spent most of my time on vacations going up to the Vilas area. But when I wanted to crack that code over there. It seemed, you know, it, it just seemed like there was bigger fish in more numbers of lakes over in that area. You know, I could totally be wrong about that, but just judging by pictures of, you know, of you know famous guys around that area. I'm not talking like Louis Spray or anything like that, but you know, the Steve Jensens, the, the Scott Keepers, the Pete Rich, you know, and all that. It was like, wow, they're really pulling out some serious fish over there. And yeah, I found found a job at a resort when I moved up there because, you know, you're not going to just move up to a new area and say that you're a fishing guide and your phone's going to start ringing. So I was working as a bartender, really trying to get that out there that I was, you know, a guide up in that area, started taking patrons out from the bar, had, had good success doing that and word of mouth spread like wildfire. And, you know, after two years of, Doing that full time, along with guiding as much as possible, now I have the clientele to do it full time. So it was it was a very tough run, working a lot of sixteen hour plus days between guiding and bartending. But if I didn't do that, I wouldn't be where I'm at today in such a short period of time. So yeah, it just it, it was a lot of work getting there, but I'm really happy that you know it's like I somewhat succeeded so far and. Now it's just to the point to where I'm just guiding and I want to fish as hard and long as I possibly can every possible day I can. So,
0: You know, I think that's one thing to be taken from. If you're, you know, we get some people that they're interested in guiding or whatever, and they kind of want to know how to go about doing it. I think your blueprint is the way you should go about doing it, right? You start somewhere with a some job that provides a paycheck to hopefully, you know, translate into this as a full-time gig and obviously you've succeeded.
3: Oh, yeah. And you know, and that's what I get I get so many, you know, I would say maybe a dozen, two dozen messages every year from different young anglers that strive to be a fishing guide. And I tell them the same thing, you know, and I mean, unless if you come from a lot of money where, you know, somebody was gracious enough to buy you a boat or give you A good chunk of money because that does happen, you know, and good for them. But I didn't get any of that. So it was like, you know, I have boat payments I have to make. I spend so much money on fuel driving all around that area because it's, you know, like you said, I used to fish vialis. And in any, any direction that you chose to drive within 10 minutes, you could pass five different musky waters. Up by me, it's like the next available musky water. As far as going after just big fish, it's going to be a minimum of 45 minutes away. And, you know, I cover up to two and a half hours away just because there's fewer lakes over there that hold the fish that I truly want to go after, which is the biggest fish in northern Wisconsin.
0: So let's talk about big fish in northern Wisconsin. There's always been that, you know, stigma that northern Wisconsin doesn't have big fish, but. I'd say based off of following you, either you're slipping over to Minnesota all the time or you found some big fish in Wisconsin, what would you say is like the state of Muskies in Wisconsin as of right now?
3: As of right now, you know i you know we're not seeing those big fish that historically that Wisconsin used to grow, you know, where there are some you know fifty three, fifty four, fifty five plus inch animals around. But, you know, when I look at big muskies, and I don't care where you are in the U.S. of A., I think anything 45 or bigger is considered a big fish to me. And, you know, what I really like about northern Wisconsin, well, just in general, you know, I'm from Wisconsin. I love the state. So I I really like how our fish really tend to hold their weight really well. But you know, there there's big animals up there. We don't see as many 50 inchers as other states do. But you know, when you're catching 30 plus pound 48 inches, you know, you can't really argue with that. So it's they're very challenging fish that very slow metabolisms. They don't have to eat if they don't want to. They're very lazy. If they don't want to move, they're not gonna move. So there's there's more of a challenge there of like picking apart certain spots that you know that has a big one and if you fish it too fast you might blow right past that fish you get a cast within 10 feet of that animal and it won't move so sometimes really picking that area apart and you know will yield greater success but I I just think it's a little bit more of a challenge and you know we don't see big fish year-round per se you know numbers of them but when they when they do start picking out some big fish it's a lot of fun
0: Yeah. I mean, it sounds, it seems as though you guys have been onto something up there and it's awesome. And I agree with you. Quite honestly, I could even drop the, the, the number down a little bit lower. I think a 40 inch fish is a big fish to many anglers. I'm, I like catching all of them. I like catching the ones over 40 a little bit better. And I like catching the ones over 45, even that much better, but it's good to know that you guys have shots of those, of that type of potential up there. And I've known this for a while, but it's, you know, it's good to see more of it getting out there because like I said, there's a lot of people that would, you know, go skip over to Minnesota to, you know, you know, to ignore Wisconsin. And I just feel like it's kind of like one of the the main pla the main stays, I guess, in muskie fishing.
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, to be honest with you, my first three trips over to Minnesota, I mean, no B.S. I caught a fish over 50 inches and they were all on lakes that I've never fished before. I'm not saying that it was easy. It was, you know, it was a lot of time on those particular bodies of water to find those animals. It was so much fun doing it. But, you know, it's just something about that northern Wisconsin that, you know, it's a little bit more of a challenge. And I, I would say even this past year, Minnesota, it was the challenge to find big fish over there, too, because I was over there for about two, three weeks. And, you know, my my first three trips over there were like mind blowing. And then after that, fast forward to, you know, this past year, it's tougher. And and I strictly think it's based on pressure.
0: Yeah. And the pre- I mean, you would know it. I would assuming the pressure continues to increase everywhere you go for muskies.
3: Oh yeah. It's unbelievable. It really is. I mean, and it's good. You know, like we want people musky fishing. So, you know, when I hear people complaining about musky fishing right now, that it wasn't like it used to be in this and that, honestly, those are the people that I would see while I was bartending, sitting at the bar at four o'clock in the afternoon or coming in for lunch and staying there for two, three hours getting pickled. And it was like, you know, these things are, they, they have select feeding windows all over the place, but especially in northern Wisconsin. And if you're not beating that water up, you're doing yourself a huge disadvantage, big time. So, you know, I don't care where you are in the musky world as of right now, you got to work for them. And, and that's why a real hardcore musky fishermen truly love it.
1: Yeah, you know, Michael, I think you hit it on the head. I mean, the Wisconsin fish have always been known to carry their weight, right? And we got to play with some of those fish years ago when Mille Lac was really on fire. And I think a combination of both leech lakers with the Wisconsin strain, they, those were some of the most special fish, right? It's bizarre. And, you know, it's, it's no different here in Minnesota as well. As you know, you just said it, you experienced it this fall. There are timeframes when these fish are just nuts. And they're just going and going, right? But at the end of the day, those big fish, those really special fish, you know, you talk about, say, 48 and bigger, they are not always the easiest ones to catch, right? So there's different time frames throughout the year where you just see them. And I've always said it's like three to seven days a month that you get to play with those animals. So definitely something to consider as well.
3: Yeah, I mean, they're, they they don't get big by being dumb, that's for sure. And I truly think, you know, I, I'm not a musky by any means, but I think those things really do remember. You know, they're kind of like us. You know, they're, we have smart humans and we have really dumb humans that will repeat the same stupid mistake over and over again. So, you know, we, we have fish up there that I've contacted five, six times out of certain body of water and there's ones that you know you catch them and then you don't see them for a few years and then all of a sudden you look back on your pictures four years later it's like oh wow look we caught her again and it was a big one and it was smart so yeah they're they're around I mean we see them we see them all the time but uh getting them to go is is definitely a different story
1: I hear you man you know one of the things that I can say too Michael is I I do think that where you decide to land and actually make your career is is a huge key to this whole thing as well. You know, you are in musty country when you're in Hayward area, you know, and you have a plethora of lakes to fish. I've fished those lakes 30 years ago, 25 years ago, and I love them. We, we actually visited the Hayward area again this, this past season with the Mayhem 10,000 cats, and I love it over there. I mean, I truly do, and I the passion and just, you know, you go into a bar, you go into a restaurant, there's monkeys all around you, right? And I think that, you know, with the amount of traffic that goes to the Hayward area and so on and so forth, it's probably a little easier to make a career out of that neck of the woods.
3: Yes. Yeah. You know, you're absolutely right. That, that Louis Spray quote unquote record, you know, we won't necessarily have to get into that, but you know, that draws a lot of people out to my area. And I I have a lot of people that have never muskie fish a day in their life. And if I do get those people, they come out once a year. And and it's because they're up in Northern Wisconsin. They hear about these big muskies and do they want to go after them.
0: Let's talk a little bit about getting after them, Michael. You know, we, we talked, Brad wanted us to talk a little bit about, you know, shallow versus deep and when you consider one versus the other, but let's, before that, do you have a do you have a, like a depth that you would define shallow or deep, or is that relative to the body of water you're on?
3: I think it's all relative to the body of water you're on personally. I mean, and even when we say deep water, I mean, deep water to me, you know, we don't want to be fishing these things more than 20, 25 feet down. So if I look, you know, if I'm in the back of my 20 foot craft and I look up to the front of my boat, that's not that big of a difference. So, I mean, what we think is deep water as far as like 20, 25 feet of water, maybe 30 feet of water goes, it's really not all that deep. So, you know, it, it's all dependent on the body of water that you're on. Does it, is it a Cisco body of water? Is it a perch and Cisco body of water as far as the forge goes? It all kind of depends on, on the forage and how I'm attacking, let's say deeper or shallow.
0: So on the uh, we're gonna kind of jump on ahead here for a minute, but we'll kinda, we'll kind of swing back. So you're talking about the the forage. Does that also dictate the size of the lures you're throwing, or are you a, pretty much a big bait type of a guy?
3: Yeah, you know it's really funny. is, like let's say on my perch and crappie schools or lakes, I throw a lot of smaller like bucktails during the day. It's something crazy. Like, I I honestly haven't seen much over nines work during the day up there. I mean, occasionally we might get bit on them or you might hear somebody catching one on them. But a lot of times it's it's smaller during the day, unless if I'm throwing rubber. If I'm throwing rubber in the weeds, I want the biggest, baddest piece of rubber I can toss at them. And I think that's mainly because those weeds that I am throwing in typically are really thick. So I want to move as much water as possible and try to catch their attention. Because again, they are lazy fish, they can be, but as far as night goes, I, I throw the biggest, baddest baits available. It's typically big bucktails, you know. That, that detonator has been unbelievable in my boat at night up there, and I think it's mainly because when those fish do slide up on the weeds, those big fish, is they're not always up in the weeds most of the time. I think you know, a lot of those during the day, those fish are out in 20 feet of water, or they're on the break in the sand waiting for those perch and crappie schools to swim up and down that that sandy area. But at night, a lot of times those fish will start sliding in close to those weed edges. And I really want to focus on slowing it down. And I want something that's as loud as possible. And, you know, usually if you want sound, you're moving things fast. But when you get a big, big buff tail on, especially one with a lot of grind on it, you can slow that thing way down, keep that thing in front of their face a lot longer and you can get those things to go. And I think it's just mainly, it's things that they're not used to seeing. Even like the small bucktail bite during the day, I had customers actually figure that out for me. A lot of these were, like you said, new anglers. And I was like, you know, this, that bait needs to go a little bit faster, a little bit faster. And the bait is just like, the blades are barely spinning. And all of a sudden, a four-footer shoots out of the weeds, ten feet away from the boat, and just inhales the bait. It was like, oh, maybe we're onto something. So it could be that these fish aren't used to seeing fish or baits move like that, or they're just extremely lazy. I'm not quite sure about that, but you know, it's slow has been the key, unless if you're ripping rubber, you know, or twitching crankbaits. You know, I twitch crankbaits awfully fast, so it kind of gives off that same presentation of ripping big rubber.
0: Hey Brad I'm going to jump in on the detonator there like it's good to hear that he's been catching fish on that thing because I've been saying this on the podcast even though I know you won't toot the horn of that bait but like if you're if you're not throwing detonators I feel like you're missing out like, there's very few anglers I feel that are doing it because of they're int- intimidated by the size of the blades but Michael you can probably attest to it it's really not that bad to throw that bait
3: no it's not and the way that i tell my customers when i give them this bait and they look at it and their eyes get ghost you know (laughs) they're wide and their skin turns ghostly white it's like if you're throwing this and you feel pain you're you're pulling it too fast you know that bait needs to be slowed way down if you're bumping into weeds you gotta push your rod tip up you know to more of a horizontal level until you get over that weed bed and then you start driving that rod tip down to attain that little bit more depth outside of that weed edge. But yeah, it's, if you're throwing it too fast, yeah, it could hurt, you know, but you know, when I look at musky fishing in general, though, it should hurt a little bit.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know, Brad, are you surprised at how underutilized the detonator still is, even though we talk about it enough?
1: Yeah, I definitely am, Jeff. But I, I, I think and maybe I'm totally wrong in this, but it's kind of apparent when you start you know, you've done the shows as many years as I've done, it's over twenty years. And when you when I'm at the shows, I think there was a good chunk of ten to twelve years where it was kind of the same people. It was maybe a you know, a steady pace of multiple musky anglers that just kept coming to the shows. And I think a lot of them either aged out or maybe they've lost interest in some sort of fashion, but we kind of have a little bit of a revolving door going on, in my opinion, in the muskie industry. And what I mean by that is, you know, we were talking about fishing pressure just a little bit ago. I think that there's so many new people trying the sport, and I love to see that. But what I was going to say is, I feel that when people first engage in the sport of muskie fishing, they start small, and they they kind of work their way up to bigger baits, and and the meter, I wouldn't say, is the largest blade bait. You know, I mean, if you look at our supermodel, it's a little bit longer yet. But at the end of the day, I, I think some of it has to do with that, Jeff. I think it's the new people coming into the sport, and they're maybe intimidated by bigger baits. And, it, and it's interesting, you know, you over this many years, listening to guides and listening to different seminars and what have you, conversations we have here on the podcast, TV shows, whatever it might be, you hear people talk about you know you got a downside you got a downside and 10 15 years ago it was like we couldn't be big enough right and so i don't know i still enjoy large baits and and that's my kind of gig and i think a lot of it has to do with knowing that everybody else is going smaller makes me want to go larger and and i think that the fish get kind of used to small 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 and hey big fish big bait <laughs> It works for me. So I stick it all with that.
0: Yeah, definitely.
3: I couldn't. Yeah, and I agree with you on that. Because, like, you know, when people saw me out of the back of the boat throwing a monster, Medusa, or a pounder, you know, they looked at me like I was crazy. And I tried to get them to throw it. And I was like, listen, if you're not going to throw it, I'm going to throw something different. And then you start seeing the success out of the back of the boat. And then it's like, oh, I want to throw that now. You know, teach me how to throw a big piece of rubber. And it's just like what you said. A lot of people are too afraid to throw that stuff. And, you know, until you get somebody to either teach you how to do it to where it doesn't hurt as bad, or you figure out a way to where it doesn't hurt you as bad, or you get strong enough to where you just don't give a give a rat anymore,
1: and then, it, you know, and then you've got it. Yeah, I would agree with that. And, I mean, think about it now. You know, Michael, you've been in it long enough, Jeff, you as well. The equipment we have today versus 20 years ago versus 40 years ago, I mean, come on, get real. We can throw anything we want at this point. The reels are so much better. The rods are so much better, so forth. And, and it's then after that, it's about technique, right? So if you're launching a pounder or a big Husky Medusa or wh- whatever, it, you definitely you find a way that's comfortable and it's more of a wob, and, and it really isn't that much work. It isn't that much different. You know, working that big rubber bait is easy, big blades. You have reels that power through that, so you can make your life really, really easy.
0: Yeah, let's 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 jump back. We kind of went off on a, on a bait thing, which I want to talk a little bit about because you are talking about forage. But let's go back to you know shallow versus deep, Michael. You know w- when you start out the day, obviously you're going to be able to go off of you know w- what happened previously. But are you typically going to be starting what we would say like is shallow, or are you going to typically be starting out deep?
3: You know, it it depends on the time of the year, but let's say like, you know, in Northern Wisconsin, more times than not, you know, especially our big lakes, they get warmed up by the end of June. So that's usually go time. And then by the end of June there, I'm typically starting out shallow and I'm really focusing on that on my electronics, marking out where that bait is. If I'm finding bait up shallow, I'm going to stay out shallow. If I'm marking big clouds of perch and crappies, out on that sand break going into deeper water then that's going to change my total approach for the next spot and then I'll actually keep that boat out a cast length and a half to where we were and then I'll focus on working those baits to where they're landing you know 10-15 feet away from the main weed edge let them sink down to the bottom or get closer down to the bottom and then I can attain that depth all the way through as I bring it back so It all just depends on where the bait is, but I typically start out shallow and then make adjustments from there. Cause there's always fish in the weeds more times than not. The ones that are always in there are not going to be big ones, but it gives us an idea of what's all in there too, right off the bat.
0: All right. So I have, I have asked this question many times on the podcast. Let's talk patterning for a little bit. So let's just say you started shallow weeds you've been there for three hours. You haven't contacted muskies. Where, what's your next move going to be? And how long do you wait before you make one?
3: You know, it's, I would say probably a couple spots, you know, the spots I fish are, I I tend to fish spots on the spot. I really hate just like, let's say it's like a mile long lead edge. Yeah. There could be fish in there throughout that whole mile, but do I really want to work that really precisely going seven tenths of a mile an hour No, not really. So I'm really focusing more on the spot on the spot. I'm running and gunning a ton out there. So I would say two or three spots. And if I don't see anything that I really like, and then I start adjusting out to a little bit deeper water, then I might, you know, on those deeper water spots, I'm going to look for spots that have some sort of structure on it. You know, up in northern Wisconsin, a lot of those areas up there have been, you know, a lot of forestry happens up there. Or logging, I should say. So there are logs all over the place in those lakes, and I'm not talking about timber that's standing straight up. Just a random log sending in 15, 20 feet of water on the bottom can hold a big fish or, you know, any any size fish. So now, you know, that just goes based off of experience as far as finding those areas. But if I find, like, a big log that's sitting on the bottom, I'll adjust the cribs, it, and then I'll go from there. If I'm not finding bait and or muskies with my side imaging on those areas, and then I'm moving more out a little bit deeper, but usually if I'm not finding that bait up in the weeds or on those cribs or on those random logs out there, they're going to be randomly floating around out there on those, well, not randomly, but they're on those main that first main break in that deep water and then I start adjusting to that.
1: But so Michael, you know, when you're fishing these logs, it's kind of crazy. I mean, it, you're talking just a log, no branches, correct?
3: Yep. Yeah, I mean there could be there there are a few out on a few bodies of water that do have a few branches on them. But you know, a lot of these these can just be log that was cut down and it's laying on the bottom. It really looks like a like a telephone pole laying on the bottom of the lake.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, it's it's always interesting. I mean, like I go down to the south and maybe the east, you know, where Chase is at, we're fishing down down timber that's basically off the shoreline and it's just covered in branches. What kind of baits are you generally using when you're just hitting these dead logs down there? You know, it, you're talking a telephone pole. How are you approaching it? Are you are you fishing it horizontally? Or are you you know are you coming back over at crossways? How are you approaching that structure? So that's when,
3: when I see that structure, more times than not, you'll actually see that muskie sitting on that structure with side imaging because there's nothing but sand around it. You know, there's one or two logs around and then it's just sand. So those fish pop right out unless they're sitting right on top of the log, which they usually don't do. They're usually just right off of it, acting like they're hidden, <laughs> which you're definitely not. But more times than not, I'll I'll either have, you know, if we're throwing a bucktail, I'll have the person cast in that general direction, let that bucktail sink all the way down to that piece of structure, just beyond it and work it back really slow. And once they, once I get an idea of where that bait is, you know, if it cleared that whole log, if it went past it, then we might, then I want them to start changing up that speed to start speeding it up as it's getting back up into that shallower area, coming back to the boat. Otherwise rubber, same thing. I'll cast that rubber out. Every once in a while, we'll snag that log, which sucks, but it's really like hitting a needle in the haystack, to be honest. So let that piece of rubber sink all the way down to the bottom and rip that thing back up. I don't Please do a, a whole lot of horizontal or yeah, a whole lot of vertical approaches on that. I I'm very bad at jigging. I I say that I'm bad at jigging because I don't do it that much.
1: Yeah, well, I'll tell you this, man, that jigging bite can be so much fun. It's a a really incredible way to catch them. But, you know, boat position and what have you, I mean, a lot of, depending on the body of water you're on, if you're in really clear water, it's kind of mentally a struggle to actually try to get your boat position over top of fish, right? But it is definitely an effective tool. And I did it years ago. It, It was a lot of fun this past year doing it on the TV show that we did down in Ohio it's just incredible it's a really cool way to catch them and when they eat it they eat it you know and you lose a bunch of them doing it as well so my next question I guess would be how much time are you just spending you know using your side imaging and seeing if somebody's home or are you fishing every one of them even if you aren't seeing those fish
3: Typically, these areas are close to areas that I would be casting anyways, like there's something else good by it, you know, you know, and it could it, not necessarily super close to it, but it's somewhat close. So if I'm shooting out, typically I'm shooting out 70, 80 feet on my side imaging, just because it shows up a little bit better. I know you can go attain a little bit more, more, you know, distance on it, but I like how it shows up a little bit better. And I feel like most of my clients on an average cast are going to cast 80 feet in general. So you know, they're typically areas that we would be hitting anyways. And if nobody's home, you know, I won't focus on that log. I'll get right back onto that structure that we were fishing. You now, as far as cribs go, anything that stands up or or a tree with branches, those will typically hold more bait. And if I don't see the bait on those pieces of structure, I don't even bother fishing. I I, I don't see them on that vertical structure as much as I do the stuff that's laying on the bottom as far as if there's bait or not if that makes sense
1: I think it makes perfect sense and the, and the reason I say that is I I do think that muskies spend 80 90 percent of their time on right and that could be in 10 feet of water it could be in 25 feet of water and over the years you know as electronics has continued to improve I've really felt that I always thought that, but now I'm almost confirming it, right? And th- and that's my opinion. But yeah, it's quite interesting. I, I will say this too. I'm quite jealous of Wisconsin. You guys have done such a great job with cribs, and those cribs can be utilized so well. And I wish we had a bunch of them over here in Minnesota, that's for sure. That, that's a really cool way to be able to, to concentrate a bunch of bait fish and then as well the big fish right behind them. So super, super cool on Wisconsin that they do that.
3: Oh, absolutely, especially on those lakes that we have up here that don't have weeds. You know, it's like they they need some sort of structure to kind of, or we need some sort of structure to kind of congregate these fish. And it it just, it definitely helps having, having
1: those in the water, that's for sure. You know, the unique thing too, I don't know if it's so much on your electronics. I think there is on some of the electronics and mapping and what have you. Some of those cribs are listed right on there, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Very few
3: lakes have them actually listed on there. And if they are on there, they're pretty general. You know, it's not like there's a crib right here found on your Lake Master chip. You know, if they mark cribs, there's usually a cluster of them around. But yeah, not I wouldn't say a ton of them by any means, but there are a handful of lakes up there where they do actually list a few cribs on those lakes. And those are typically the lakes that do not have
1: much for vegetation at all. That makes sense, but that's all right. Time on the water. You'll you'll start putting it together if you want to get after it and find those cribs. You cruise around, maybe troll or something. Yeah, well, that's what I did when
3: I moved up here. I moved up here in October of 2018, and it was a terrible time to move up here because I had, what, like three weeks of muskie fishing before the lake froze up. And when I ran out of suckers, I was so happy I did because I just put on a couple matlocks and a 13-inch Jake and I started, or a 13-inch Grandma, and I trolled. And I found all those cribs, logs, I found trees, you know, even anchor ropes, believe it or not. I mean, people lose their anchors on so many of these lakes and you can see them on your side. I'm seeing it's like a big ribbon that's coming up out of nowhere. And it's amazing how much bait will actually sit on those.
1: I've seen that myself. It's pretty wild to think, you know, and as you're casting around all this stuff, it's amazing that you don't get hung up on it more often. That's for sure. Oh my gosh.
3: I I can't tell you uh, that year that I moved up there, how how much time I spent wasting pulling matlocks and, and headlocks out of rope. I never lost one, believe it or not, but there was one day where I spent two and a half hours trying to get one that was like 10 feet down. In the, in the beginning of November. And I don't know how I got it back, but she finally gave
1: out. <laughs> that's awesome. That's funny. Well, we have kind of talked a little bit about the shallow stuff, but, you know, honestly, we kind of almost switched right into it when you start talking about deeper structure and you've kind of hit that too as far as the cribs and what have you. Those cribs vary in, in what depth they are positioned. So that's something to also look at What's your normal approach like say on a crib? I mean, are you trying to do that seventy feet like you were just talking about, or are you getting closer or are you getting further away? You know, I keep it around that 60,
3: 70, maybe 80 feet. Again, you know, like I'll I'll I, I've spent so much time on these bodies of water where I know that there's a decent crib bite that you know, I'll I'll point out. I got them marked out on my GPS. I can point exactly where they are get people to drop that right on top of those cribs and work them back. So, you know, I, I do like a little bit of distance for sure. I definitely don't like to get on top of them that much or be really close because I want that bait to be able to stay down in that depth. The shorter that bait is away from the boat, obviously the faster it's going to want to come back up shallow. So I, I tend to keep a little bit more of a distance to keep that bait really close to those bo- or to those areas
1: makes good sense so let me ask you this what are the temps associated with what kind of structure you're going to work or maybe it's a seasonal progression or i'm I'm kind of curious on your approach when do you say you know what i'm leaving the wheat beds i'm going to go to a little bit deeper water what are those temps associated with the seasonal How, how does that look in your in your boat you know it's typically once those
3: mayflies start hatching that's when i'm really going to slide off that piece of structure and work those deep breaks where a majority of those bugs are hatching but you know and it it just seems like the whole ecosystem is out there you know so it 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 all kind of depends too like because while you know usually on opener or a few weeks into opener when that water's still cold We'll have a lot of bluegills staged up on those cribs, whereas the crappies are up, sh- still spawning or just finishing up spawning. So there's always, you know, there, there's bait on those cribs then, and then those bluegills will slide up shallow to go spawn up there, and then you know you could find a really good bite up shallow where those bluegills are spawning. You know, it's there, there's so many options and. what what really i'm kind of jumping forward to the fall because i do run a live scope off my boat and you know it's typically you know in the fall i'm just watching a sucker and this fall when i had downtime i'd go to a totally different area that i've never fished before in the fall and it doesn't look like i necessarily even really wanted to fish it okay it could just be a generic weed edge with a few points that stick out and i couldn't tell you how many muskies we found in brand new areas, chasing suckers. And, you know, a lot of times they don't eat, you know, we we could see anywhere from 15, 20 fish in a day and maybe get one of them to bite. But it's, it was a cool tool to really see how many fish are actually in these bodies of water. There is a lot of muskies in a lot of bodies of water. We just don't see them.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, there's no question, right? Are you, are you concentrating like on the secondary break when you say you're moving out a little bit deeper from some of those structures that you'd fish shallow? Absolutely,
3: that's where we uh, concentration of bug hatches around that that late June, early July, when those water temps start getting into that mid to upper 60s, maybe even low 70s. So yeah, it's it's pretty much a food highway for those ecosystems. And I'm not saying that fish can't be out a little bit deeper, a little bit shallower during that time. But there is a great concentration of bugs hatching on that secondary break line. And it is, a, it's actually really easy to hit. And, you know, a tactic that I really adopted over the past couple of years, that with great success is when that's actually happening, I'll work that structure inside out to where I'll actually have my boat parked right on top of the edge of that weed bed cast out, let that bait sink down and get a fish to go. I had a client out this year. We were working mainly the weeds, but kind of keeping our baits down a little bit deeper. We had, you know, what I called a four footer come up hot on a bait. I told my guys, we're going to leave her alone. We're going to go hit another spot. We're going to come back. We're going to inside out her. And when we got back to that spot, put on a big swim bait, or a customer of mine had a big swim bait on. I was like, let that thing sit down. We're getting close to that area. Be ready, be ready. And sure enough, he wasn't ready Four footer comes up even hotter, just completely misses his bait. And I was just heartbroken next day. Another guy caught her in the exact same spot and it was a 49 and like a quarter inch or so. You know, I, I just kind of do things a little bit different, you know, as far as that inside out approach, those fish aren't typically used to seeing those baits move in that direction. So, and we definitely saw that fish get hotter when we did
1: that. Now, that's the, the information that I think everybody's looking for, right, Michael? I mean, I, I do the same kind of stuff, I, and it's going against the grain and setting yourself aside or different than everybody else that's out there angling. I love to hear that, but...
0: You know, Brad, I'll say about that though. Like we talk about it and people talk about doing different things, but I think it's, it it's a confidence deal. It's always, it always comes back to confidence in muskie fishing. So it's so important because like, if you do it, how long do you throw inside out before you don't see anything or catch anything? But you're like, well, I'm just going to go back to doing what I've done before. Cause that's caught muskies. It's like, you really need to, you know, stick to a plan. And, and it's like, let's just not throw inside out during, in between moon phases. You need to do it during times where you think there's an active, you know, fish available and that you have a chance of catching it. Otherwise you're going to end up with no results because you gave it no time.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. And you, and you could work that spot inside out, or let's say outside in and you could work it. Like I said, I work these spots in small areas. I can turn right around and hit that inside out right away. And that fish may want it going a different direction where it didn't want it going that one direction. So if I'm focusing on more hitting more spots, smaller spots, I can get away with that throughout the day without wasting too much time.
1: I, I would agree with that, Michael. And the, and the other thing to that I would say is that, <laughs> if, like to what Jeff just mentioned, you know, if you got a bite that's going on really good, you see the window is open. You know, take 15 minutes, a half hour, hour, whatever it might be, and actually try doing some of those unique presentations. And, and you might be surprised. You might double your output and catches. So, yeah, believe me, you know, you've got your favorite lakes and you fish on the, on your favorite lakes and the bite's tough. And you. that's when you go, maybe we should try a different lake. Well, then you go to that other lake and fishing's already tough. And you just left the lake that you really know well. And are you really giving the new lake a good chance, a good crack at having success? I mean, you got to ask yourself that. Maybe when your favorite lake's really going, maybe you should go look at some of these other lakes and you're going to start putting pieces of the puzzle together as well. Right? No, and that's it too. I
3: mean, it's I, I know it's everybody sounds like a broken record when it comes to time on the water, but I mean, it's when you got the time to do it, hit it as hard as you possibly can and hit it well you know learn from your success and from your mistakes and go from there but i completely agree with you it's it's hard for me to leave a body of water to go to another one because like what you said chances are if it's tough on that body of water that you have it dialed in it's probably going to be tough on that other body of water yeah there's some exceptions to where that one might be going better during a certain weather system moving in versus another one but that's just more time that you're away from the water. So, and, you know, I, I, I give, I'm going to be honest here. You know, I try to keep people out as long as possible. Like I said, I'm single. I don't have any kids. So I want to see fish in the boat. If I have clients that can't go long, a lot of times I drop them off and I just keep going. I keep going as long as I can because I'm only getting older every day. I'm not going to be able to do this, you know, as hard as I am now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 40 years from now. So I try to take it any time I'm out on the water to give it my 100% at all times. And when you're not fishing, if you're driving around going to a new lake, it could sometimes shoot you in the foot.
1: No, yeah. you're not going to get any arguments from me on that. And, you know, it's kind of funny here. A couple of years ago, Luke Ronestrand, he came up to me and he says, Brad, you know, is there anything that you wish you would have done different when Mille Lac was really gone? And I'm like, Luke, we were fishing 20 hours a day. I don't know. I mean, you, you have to sleep a little. I, I don't know if we could have done anything different. You know what I mean? <laughs> but that's what it takes. And and that time on the water, it's so huge. And if you're really, really hungry, and I, it sounds like you are, and I, the little bits and pieces that I've heard about you, Michael, you are a hungry musky guide, and I love to see it, man. It's so cool seeing younger people like yourself getting after it. And you're tasting that success, and it's awesome.
3: Yeah, I, re- I appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah, it's you know it's the only thing I uh, I love doing. A lot of things, but it's the only thing I really love doing.
1: <laughs> uh, it shows. It really shows. I got one kind of wild question. Maybe you can answer. it, Maybe you can't. And there's so many different lakes that you can fish over in that neck of the woods. But what would you say the the normal median to depth is in most of your lakes are they similar or are they do they vary a bunch yeah I mean
3: I would say they vary quite a bit I mean we got we got lakes that get down to 110 feet deep or Cisco bodies of water and we got our you know our traditional flowage systems are 30 to maybe 50 feet deep but usually on those flowage systems I'm working a lot shallower unless if there's a big bug bite or anything like that or if it gets warmer and those fish start shooting out a little bit but you know it's it it, it definitely varies all over the place i mean we catch muskies and some of our action bodies water are like you know 15 feet deep and 100 acres and you can catch 10 11 fish in a day going out there Granted, they're not going to be big ones every once in a while you might crack one that's 45 46 real nice
1: fish but yeah, they're they're all over the place. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what I figured you'd say, but I I kind of asked that. Maybe uh, I'm not trying to like flip anything in on you there, but I, I the thing is that I'm thinking about is I generally elevate to those Cisco bodies of water because that's where I fish generally here in Minnesota. So when I'm in your neck of the woods, that's the bodies of water that I want to fish and don't get me wrong i think some of those flowages and some of those smaller lakes are just as fun but i want to be fishing where i have an opportunity at a large fish that's just the way you know it's it's no different than bow hunting right you got a property over here that's 60 acres and you've never seen or never heard of a big buck in that neck of the woods i'm i'm wanting to go to the place where it might be 20 acres and you have the opportunity at a big buck so I fish the same exact way. I, I wanna make sure that I'm spending time where I have an opportunity to large fish. And that might mean that I don't catch anything that day, but the opportunity's still there.
3: Yeah, yeah. And that's how I am too. And you know, I I get clients that just want to catch a muskie. They don't care how big it is. You know, it could be somebody's first muskie or they just enjoy catching fish, you know? And don't get me wrong, I don't mind doing that, but I'd rather I'd rather go a day without touching one, knowing that we have a shot at a really big fish. You know, that's just me personally, but I'm not going to tell, you know, the people that, you know, th- this is their day. I'm not going to tell them what to do 100% on, you know, what their goals are, at least.
0: All right, Michael, let's uh, let's go on with uh, one one last thing probably before we let you go. I want to know about... Yeah. Lake choices. There's so many of them up there. How do you even pick one for the day? You know, I know that's one of the things that many anglers up there in northern Wisconsin struggle with. It's something I even struggle with because I'm, you know, I'm going through, you know, as I as I pay attention to weather and, you know, maybe how the lakes have performed recently for me or whatever. And it's still something I struggle with. I mean, how do you pick lakes up there?
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, let's uh, let's say like when I moved up here or when I was going up to Bylas County you know, on a vacation, you know, we'll put it more into a sense of where, you know, somebody's traveling for, you know, usually not that long of a period, you know, usually less than a week to go fishing. A lot of times I look at stocking records, you know, I'll pick whatever county I'm in and I go through every lake that possibly has muskies in it. And I'm looking for those lakes that they put a big dumping of muskies in them 15 to 20 plus years ago. You know up to let's say 25 years you know they, we do have a few you know quite a few lakes up there where you know this lake x here got three thousand muskies dumped into it you know 20 years ago and before that and after that they've gotten 1500 every other year i know that there's going to be a strong year class of bigger fish moving around if i pick those lakes that are give them 15 20 years to grow So that's, that's how I found, you know, success. I'm finding a lot of the bigger fish up here, but yeah, it's, that's, I mainly looked at that to be completely honest with you. And after I spent a lot of time up in both areas, you figure out what weather patterns, you know, certain lakes like certain weather patterns. You know, I could, you know, one of my, one of my most favorite lakes for big fish, honestly, for a moon phase. Or for an incoming storm, I could leave it a hundred percent. If it's post-frontal oh. or if it's high pressure, I do really well on that body. It's really sure she goes against everything that we've been reading for, you know, and learning about for the past 20, 30 years in must be magazine or seminars or whatnot, you know? So just more time on the water really helped me figure out those patterns, but yeah, knowing which lakes could potentially hold the biggest fish possible, you know, with due to the large stocking numbers is what I primarily look for.
0: Well, let me ask you this. When you go try one of these new lakes, how many times are you going to hit it with no success before you're just like, yep, it's this isn't going to happen? Or or does that ever happen? Do you ever cross a lake off? You're like, yep, I'm not going back there anymore, regardless of what the data tells me.
3: Yeah, you know, I would say I've never given up on a lake to where if I know that there's big ones in there, you know, that some of these times where I'm trying these, these new lakes that could be two, two, two and a half hours away and I'm seeing life, you know, whether I'm catching, catching smaller fish or seeing some smaller fish or seeing big ones. If I see that life, I know that they're there and maybe I just picked a bad time of year to go after them. And then it's like, okay, I have a day off here in September. The lakes around me are really, really good right now. I could go out there and go look like a hero to go post on my Instagram page of uh, you know, a guy catching a big fish, but that's not what I want to do. I want to go find something else that's better. And, you know, because there is something out there that's as good or better. And uh, so even I will leave good bites if I have a day off to go experiment because that's the only way that you're going to really find new bodies of water. If the weather is good or, you know, you you don't want to go try a new lake if it's absolutely crappy conditions outside. Cause I feel like a lot of people will do that where they'll get bored and they'll go try a new body of water and it's high pressure and, you know, a flat, calm day and they don't get success and they'll never go back. It's like, oh, no, you know, we got to give this body water a few more opportunities under different weather conditions.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with that. Uh, one last question before we let you go is best big fish bait in your boat in recent years. What's it going to be?
3: Oh, my gosh. Oh, oh boy. I mean, it's going to be big, big rubber for me. I, I just enjoy throwing it. Like you said, I can do it now. Big rubber would be the number one for me during the day at night. It's I, I got to pick two, Jeff. It's that's too tough, but at night it's going to be a really big bucktail. All right. So my work really, really slow, you know, top waters and everything else work really good too. Don't get me wrong, but you know, it's all year dependent last year was one of the better bucktail bites I've ever seen. And I, I believe Steve said that as well on a podcast not too long ago, you know, you were dumb for not throwing a bucktail. Right, And everything changes. Last year was one of the worst topwater bites I've ever had in my life. So, so every, every year is different. Every year they want something different. So you got to cycle through a little bit, but be confident in what you're throwing and give it an honest chance on an, and an honest chance on a certain body of water too.
0: I don't want to go into this right now, but since you mentioned it with your bait choices, you had a daytime bait and nighttime bait, and maybe we can s- circle back to this this summer if you want to come back on. But how often do you spend night fishing? Is that something you do often?
3: Yeah, quite a bit. I mean, my my nighttime deal is normally, I mean, let's say like 70% of the time, it's typically the last or the first hour to two hours of pure darkness. When that sun completely goes under the tree line and it is true dark, I'll give it an hour to two hours. And that's usually my best time. I like what Brad said. I do need to go home and get a little bit of sleep. Otherwise, I'd pound it longer. But, you know, it all depends, too. If, I, if I'm if i on a Cisco body water, I'll tend to fish those more at night and give it, you know, a real long time after night. Because that's typically when those fish go over by me on those Cisco bodies of water, at least.
0: Very cool. Well, Michael, I want to thank you for your time today. Before I let you go, if people are interested in learning more about you, they want to book a trip with you, how do they go about doing that?
3: Yeah, absolutely. You can uh, reach me on my cell phone, which is area code 608-695-9073, or my email address, which is Hanson, H-A-N-S-O-N, dot Michael 608 at gmail.com. And my, my website, if you care to look at that is www.naguideservice.com.
0: Excellent. So Michael, I, again, I want to thank you for taking time to talk muskies with us. I would imagine we'll see you in Minnesota. Will you be at that show?
3: Yeah. Yep. I'll be there for sure. There's nothing else better to do. So I'd rather go and talk muskies with a bunch of musky nuts than sit at home.
0: Absolutely. Like, you get, like I said, Michael, thank you for your time. We really appreciate it. I want to thank all of our listeners for uh, tuning in for another episode and we will be back with a new one next week, Wednesday. So thank you for tuning in.